Bienvenidos and welcome again to the Jacobin Sports Show. And Matthew Miranda joined, as always, by the tricenarian Jonah Birch. Jonah Birch, tricenarian, people in their 30s. I thought I would recognize you sexy young thing today. Thanks. Jonah Birch, do you believe in supernatural beings? Um, wow, that is a heavy fucking question to start with. Angels, uh, leprechauns, any of those things? Uh, no. No, I don't. Except no. when I'm watching sports. In which case, I, do you, you know, like all sports fans, I believe I have magical powers to affect the outcome of games. <laughs> oh um, my god. When the Mets... I, I couldn't move. I, I literally, when the Mets were losing to the Padres, I was angrily sitting in different seats in my house because one of them had to have hits in it. And I was blaming myself because I couldn't find the right chair that had the hits. And then I realized it probably wasn't me. Um, wow. But Yeah, that's tough. I was wondering if we were going to talk about that today. <laughs> we can. We certainly, to we certainly can. Yeah. Yeah, that, that story changed in a bit. Um, we will talk baseball today, but thankfully not the Mets demise. Um, we'll talk baseball. We will talk a bit of tennis um, maybe one NBA story and Jonah Birch, especially for you, some very recently breaking Tom Brady news that I don't think everyone has gotten to yet. So um, we'll get into that a little bit later in the broadcast as well. Is Giselle dating uh, Pete Davidson? That's what someone told me yesterday. No, and I was like, no, "There's no, no way, way that's true. There, there, there's no way that that's possible." But there's anyway. a lot of things in our universe, but that's that can't be one. I won't accept that timeline. Yeah. We can't be in that one. There's no way. I can't talk about that. I'm going to move on right now from that. I'm going to get to our guest intro, so I don't have to talk about Giselle and Pete Davidson anymore. Our guest is a New Yorker staff writer, the author of three books, including Louisa, The Extraordinary Life of Mrs. Adams, the co-editor of Losers, and I looked this up, the first Jacqueline Sports Show guest to come back for more, making her our Tom Brady. Welcome to the pod, Louisa Thomas. Louisa, how are you today? Oh, I'm I'm stunned. What an honor. <laughs> well, we gotta see how things go with Giselle. It may not be like the most the most glamorous yeah, well, honor. Uh, if, if the analogy holds. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, thank you for being here. Um I'm gonna start our baseball conversation by asking you if you are familiar with a poetry controversy from seven years ago. Jonah, we may have talked about this. I can't remember. Are either of you familiar with the Sherman Alexi um, Yi Fen Chow scandal from Best American Poetry in 2015? I'm not, but play, pray tell. Yeah, yeah, vaguely. Go ahead. Our first, I, our first poetry familiar. scandal of the of the pod. I'm very excited. So in 2015, Sherman Alexi was the guest editor um, for the Best American Poetry Anthology. And Alexi had made it a point to himself that he wanted the collection to be um, diverse and representative, particularly of underrepresented um, identities in past editions. So as he went through the poems that were submitted, he found one by a Chinese author named Mi Fen Chao, really liked it, decided to include it. Publication goes through. After it's published, Alexi is contacted by a white male librarian from Indiana named Michael Derrick Hudson, and it turns out that Hudson wrote the poem under the pseudonym Yi Fen Chao because Hudson had, had not been able to get it published before oh, and was convinced that if he if he submitted in the name of a Chinese woman, he would have a better chance to be published. He was published. It was a big scandal. Um, Alexei was angry, but then ended up defending him. 
I don't really care about that. But my interest is that when I was teaching and I would bring the story up to my kids, assuming that I knew what they're, I was trying to teach them like pride of ownership and their creation. And like, um, we were talking about plagiarism and things like that. And I thought the conversation would go one way. And I was stunned that I would say 90% of my kids all were like, I don't think he did anything wrong. Uh, Alexi proved his point. The system is corrupt, like good for him for getting through. And it made me realize that like there was some generational divide between me and them. This brings me to Aaron Judge. So Aaron Judge, a couple weeks ago, finishes the regular season. He has 63 home runs, American League record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it obviously led to this big conversation again, which always happens about, okay, who's the actual home run king? If it's single season, is it Aaron Judge? Is it Barry Bonds because he hit the most? Well, but he took drugs, so it can't be him. Is it Aaron Judge now because he did more, he hit more than Roger Maris? Is it Babe Ruth because he hit 60 and 154? And I'm wondering not about who do you think is the home run king, Louisa Thomas, but is this a is this a generational debate that doesn't matter really? Because I keep seeing the same reaction on social media a lot from younger people to judge, which was like, yeah, even judge says bonds to him is the record holder. Like you wrote about this in your article in the New Yorker. Do you think the debate matters? Is it possible in 2022 for a baseball debate to matter to anyone who's not old enough to remember, I don't know, He-Man? Um, I'm going to answer this in a couple of different ways. One is that I don't think that baseball has quite the purchase on the national imagining conversation that it once did. So Mm -hmm. while the Aaron judge pursuit definitely was a huge story, um, across the country, um, I don't think it was sort of the, the kind of, um, event that, um, Actually, even the, the, you know, Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire were, you know, in the late night. I mean, that was yeah. kind of this energizing, collectivizing thing. And this was more like, hey, there's this big dude doing something amazing. Um, we don't really know how to contextualize this properly, but it's fun to watch. So let's, like, get excited about it, even if we're not really sure what the stakes are. Um, but I think the sort of, like, terms of the debate are less kind of engaging to a lot of people. Um, cause it was sort of like, Oh, look, baseball's relevant. And that was kind of the event <laughs> less than like mm-hmm. what exactly was going on. Um, I do think that, um, one of the, whether or not, you know, we sort of disqualify, um, those three guys, um, you know, the number 61 is, was just like, if you were growing up in the, you know, seventies, eighties, nineties, the number 61 was just this like number you knew, you know, it was like, mm-hmm. it was just like, if you were, even if you weren't a sports fan, I think it was just a kind of one of those, like, you know, it was a kind of, you know, 1776 number, like you were handed your, yeah. you know, like, you know, American citizenship mm-hmm. papers along with like a list of things you're supposed to know about the country and 61 is on there, <laughs> yeah. you know, right. and, and I think that one of the things they did, whether or not they did it legitimately, is that I think for the generation growing up today, like that number just doesn't, they don't, they don't get that like stamp on their passport in quite the same way. So the actual number, I think, is less 
kind of part of the Americana, you know, that they inherit. So that's one of the reasons I think it's just like not as big deal to the young people. Like they're just not sort of taught that it matters in quite the same way, but it doesn't even necessarily have anything to do with steroids. It just has to do with like, yeah, it's not one of those like cultural touchstones um, that it once was. I mean, maybe baseball isn't as relevant as it was. I mean, that was my first point. But my first point was that baseball is not as relevant. But second is that even within baseball, that number is not as relevant. So it's sort of twice diminished. And that's why I think it's like less exciting, you know. But I mean, I do think the fact that he was, you know, a Yankee made it more of a a kind of, the fact that he could connect it to that lineage. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if he'd been, I don't know, a Padre or whatever, it wouldn't have been the same there wouldn't have been the same kind of like national excitement because it wouldn't have been like chasing Babe Ruth chasing Maris chasing whatever it would have been just like yeah. oh look there's a again here's a talented big guy doing something amazing yeah I mean he has a team Giancarlo Stanton his very large right, talented 59, teammate, you know and it's just kind of like and nobody remembers <laughs> it I heard it the other day and I was like oh yeah he did hit 59 yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Jonah Birch, I wanted to ask you. Oh, go ahead, Jonah. Go ahead. No, go no. Ahead. I mean, it makes sense. He plays right field for the Yankees. He's kind of he looks the part, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he's someone who obviously is very kind of marketable for baseball. Insofar mm-hmm. as they're able to market anyone at all, um, mm-hmm. it it is interesting how uh, it's it's led to this like relitigating of the steroid era and the yeah. the, the the bonds debate. And I feel like. I am at least with people my age having those fights all over again. Like, was the Bonds home run record legitimate? Do we take it seriously? I, I'm like, you know, I, I think Matthew and I disagree on this. I'm very pro Barry Bonds. You know, I think he should definitely be in the the uh, the Hall of Fame. But in some ways, it like it feels like a capstone of of kind of like this 20 year long argument or something about, about the bonds era. I I don't know. Do you guys feel that? I do. Yeah. I I was so tired. Go ahead, Louisa. Go ahead. No, no, I think that sounds right to me. Yeah. I mean, all the, all this stuff that started coming out arguments that I thought had been dead and if not buried, at least left behind years ago or just like back again. Um, I wonder, like, I think one of the reasons why, the judge story. He's a Yankee, obviously. Um, that makes everything more more of a big deal. But I also think, um, unlike Bonds, I'm sorry, unlike Sosa McGuire, and unlike even Maris and Mantle, um, where Judge, I think, was more like Bonds, is that he didn't have a peer all year to share the attention with, to share the pressure with. Like nobody was near him. He was, I think, 17 home runs ahead of the next closest person in the major. He just dwarfed everybody. So. Uh, to some extent, that probably made it a bigger deal. But also, I think um, I was very impressed that he accomplished. Because he, Judge didn't have, like, a really good hot start, and then he cooled. Like, he just did this all season. And even when his team started out, you know, like gangbusters the first couple months, and then the Yankees couldn't beat anybody for, like, two months, nothing affected Judge's production. He just kept doing it over and over and over, and... I really admire that about him. He's a hard Yankee to hate as a Met fan and Jonah's a Red Sox fan. Like we don't come by that a lot, but I, I have no problem with Aaron judge. He's likable. You know, he just seems to say the right things and, and avoids any controversy. He's out of that Derek Jeter school where he looks the part and he hasn't gotten in trouble. And I don't think he's gonna, cause he just seems to know how to play the, 
the game. Um, it's good with kids, you know. Right with kids. I mean, I, I bet I he's mean, nice he's, to animals and elderly. Yeah, people, exactly. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think that's. I think that's right. I think he seems like a good guy, and and that does make a difference, just instinctively. Um, I also think one of the things that was exciting, though, I think about. Well, one is that I think that his dominance was really the story. You know, I mean, he was doing he was doing it in an era in which pitchers are better than ever. And, you know, yeah. he was so far ahead of the competition. Um, and while it was like, it's exciting to have two guys pushing each other. Like it's even more amazing to see one guy just like do what nobody else can do um, in this context. I also think, um, yeah, I mean, I think that um, the fact that he's a Yankee is totally also part of the story. Um, and I had one other point, which I can't remember. So I'm going to stand down. <laughs> I, I do that like three times an episode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're right. I mean, one thing that's interesting there is that that personality thing really matters because yeah. when, you know, when Bonds was going for 73, I don't think even though judge was, it was the AL record, technically it wasn't the major league record. I think and they've made this mistake before with baseball. If you remember, if you follow baseball long enough, when Bonds began to near a lot of these records, like there was a very brief period of time when Bonds was doing all this and A-Rod hadn't been exposed yet as a cheater. And there was a lot of talk about, oh, well, at least we have a Like we know A-Rod is the clean champ. So Judge also gets a lot of positivity now because he's seen, I think, as a clean champ. Like oh, yeah. his I body mean, type hasn't explicitly. changed. Yeah. 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 And and there's other elements that go into that stuff too. But um, you know, it's 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 interesting that it's such a different personality. It's not even the same record, and yet it trips up all the same polemics that we literally had twenty five years ago um going on. I wanna end the judge conversation by asking you both the same question, which is if for whatever reason the universe handed you an American League MVP vote. Would you pick Aaron Judge, who set led the league in every single offensive category by a mile, or would you pick Shohei Otani, who this year did something that like no one has really ever seen, no one has seen before? He was a dominant hitter uh, for the Angels as an outfielder and a DH. He was a dominant starting pitcher. He wasn't like just good. He was, I think he's the first person to hit like forty home runs and strike out two hundred bats. Those are both incredible numbers, but. Both are worthy. You could be fine with either one. I think it's just a matter of taste. Um, I'm curious if you have a leaning either way, both of you, who you would give the award to. I would say Otani because I think it's even though his team was still terrible, um, I've never seen a person do what he's done. He he looks like a little league. He looks like the really good little league player, but he's in the major leagues doing it. What I, do you I think? mean, I would. I I mean, I I think that he's the most incredible player in baseball and probably one of the most you know interesting figures in sports and I give him like every award but <laughs> this is actually the point I forgot earlier one of the things that was so cool about what Aaron Judge was doing was that he was doing it in a September in which the Yankees were trying to make the playoffs and he was an integral part of that success and I do think that um it's not Otani's fault 
that the angels are so terrible, just as, you know, it's never been Mike Trout's fault that the angels have been so right. terrible. However, the angels are terrible. And um, <laughs> what Aaron Judge was doing wasn't just like a kind of statistical, individual, heroic show. It was also part of winning baseball games. And I think that's cool. Like, I think that's part of why we're doing sports. It's like win games. And to me, mm. the most viable player it, it, that's not determinative. Like, I don't think, I, I think that if, if, um, you know, he were, had, had slightly worse season then I'd say for sure, um, yeah. it should go the other way. But, um, given how special his season was and how it did kind of re-energize baseball, you know, in some way, um, and that it helped his team win games, then I, that's what, gives it to me this light gives judge the slight edge mm-hmm. not fair but if this was 25 years ago <laughs> this debate would be like you would just be talking about it on the subway you know like talking to your co-workers mm-hmm. about it and now I, it really does feel like a marker of baseball's cultural decline that uh, everyone's like yeah a little bit or maybe that's not true maybe that's just me you know and but i, I mean otani had an uh, era plus of 172 and an OPS plus of 145. That's, That's so crazy. unreal. I, yeah. I think he should yes. be dock points because he doesn't play the field. You know, he's a DH and uh, no, no, I, that was, that was, a, that was a poor <laughs> joke. And, and, you know, I remember when Big Poppy <laughs> used to get attacked for that. But I, I, I yes. just, I've, I've never seen anyone do what Otani does. Just, you know, like you guys are saying. And yes, the angels are, are truly, truly awful, but I don't think he should be. He should be taken down for that. That's my opinion. My two cents. Yeah. There's an interesting parallel here between Major League Baseball and the Angels, where the Angels have these two incredible, bright, great Q rating players, and it doesn't make a difference. And baseball has a season where Judge does what he does, and Otani does what he does, and it still doesn't feel like baseball is is making inroads with whatever it's lost over time. I love baseball. I've enjoyed the playoffs. Isn't baseball still, I mean, this was like what, you know, the argument 10 years ago. So tell me if this is like an outdated argument, but isn't baseball Mm. still just a regional game? Like it actually does have intense popularity. You know, the Royals are big in Kansas City. Like, I mean, it's just not, it's just not a kind of national game. And which, you know, credit to that. Like, I think, you know, local communities are cool. You know, I mean, I like that about baseball, actually. I think it's an argument in its Mm -hmm. favor, not to its detriment, but... Yeah. No, that's Which right. hopefully they'll 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 maintain because the a lot of Major League Baseball's actions towards the minor leagues the last couple seasons right. have been aggressive and confrontational right. and and seem to be. Uh, Bernie Sanders spoke out and 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 made a point about how important, like you're saying, to local color and local community, right. even on that level. I live in a a much smaller city, Rochester, upstate. Um, the minor league stadium is beautiful. It's fairly new. Um, it's very affordable. It has like a really important role in the community. If you care about the game, um, I don't know if baseball always understands that though. And we'll talk about also TV issues, you know, mm. in some mm. places, like they have not been able to watch their own team. That's not good for yeah. Yeah. local enthusiasm. And, the, and, and there's been a lot of talk with the, that Fox, when Fox sold a bunch of their, I think, affiliates, um, they became like 
Bally. It's called Bally Sports, like the the regional, the regional network that airs them in in the Midwest and out west. They're called like Bally Bally. They're all called like Bally channels, and the company that owns them um, is in danger of of kind of going under. And base Major League Baseball, the NHL, and one other, I think NBA, are all really concerned because they they get us the NBA, for example, gets if a certain number of their games have to air on these regional networks for certain revenues to kick in. That was one reason why they were intent on finishing the the first pandemic season, because if they didn't finish it and get to 72 games, they weren't going to hit that trigger. So there's been a lot of talk that the the pro leagues may come together to buy these networks just to ensure that they're still solvent and staying on the air and the games Mm -hmm. can be televised and they can get like all their bonuses. So, um, Another thing to look out there. Speaking of excellent players, which we've been doing a lot of today, let's talk about Roger Federer. Um, Louisa wrote a really wonderful article, uh, yeah. I think in September, about Federer. Um, I just want to bring up, I mean, we could talk about Federer really for a whole episode. Um, I just want to point out a couple of the facts that you mentioned and um, a couple of descriptions you made that I think really speak to this unique, unique athlete. Um you forget sometimes, like when he was at his peak, he won 11 of 16 Grand Slams in a four-year stretch. He reached 23 straight Grand Slam semis. He was number one for more than four and a half years in a row, which is incredible. Um, because you have this load management area in a lot of sports where people will prioritize, like, All right, I'm not going to play, I'm not going to focus on these little things. I'm going to, and for four and a half years, he's number one. And Louisa, you wrote something about him that, uh, the, the the term you ended on, especially for me, really summed up um, the Federer viewing experience. You wrote, uh, the funny thing, and this for me will always be his real legacy, is that those victories, as sweet and glorious as they were, both for him and the millions who loved him, seemed somehow besides the point. Federer, who had once appeared to represent a kind of luxury that is well out of the reach of most of us, came to symbolize something more approachable, a kind of sunny decency. I think of this with... um. Federer reminds me a lot of, of Roberto Clemente in that he's this beloved athlete for reasons that have nothing to do with his success on or off the, the comp- field of competition. But he's so, it's not just what he does in his profession, it's how he does it. It's not just that Federer was that great, it was how he did it. But also that line about sunny decency. Like, I never, I always liked women's tennis much more than men's tennis, but Federer, I could watch and would, would would get up early in the morning on a Sunday to see him in a Grand Slam final because there was nothing like watching this particular person perform and embody athletically and in a, in a larger sense, like everything that he did that I have never seen before. I don't think from any other athlete that I've seen in my lifetime. I hear people talk about Joe DiMaggio this way, that he was so you know, gallant and, and only like once on the field, he kicked the dirt when he was frustrated. And that was a huge story because Joe DiMaggio didn't do that. Um, I just a want to thank you for the article and B just give you a little platform here. If you want to say anything you want to about Roger Federer. Yeah, I know. It's, um, I have so much to say. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. funny, I Go feel like it. Roger Federer more than any other athlete, Roger Federer and Serena actually. Um, and so it's funny that, and Venus too, but I mean, these are the people who sort of like have defined my sports writing 
experience in some ways. So sort of saying goodbye to them has felt very kind of emotional. Oh, wow, yeah. And I think that one of the things that both of those players, um, people do feel such a strong personal connection to them for no good reason. Um, but it's also, you know, it's funny because um, I'm, I'm not much for monarchy. You know? I'm in the right place probably for that. But um, I, you know, but the sort of, I feel like the only way I've been able to connect with like people, you know, the random person's outpouring of grief for the queen is like how I feel about Roger Federer going. But there's something <laughs> like, there's this kind of, he's like the best argument for like natural aristocracy, <laughs> you know, or like, <laughs> gallant is a good word. I mean, that's, that, that is the word that we used to use to de- describe a knight, you know, um, yeah. and like, like and and that is or we used to use, but that was the word that was used to describe the attributes of a knight. And and there was something that's supposed to be kind of like innate and um, glowing, you know, a kind of like natural yeah. outpouring of of these noble qualities. And he had them. Like whether or not you know whatever you're going to feel about those things, he had them in spades, and you could just see it. And um, you know, my favorite moment, Roger Federer moment actually was, I mean, I have so many favorite Roger Federer moments, actually. Um, yeah, I do feel like, yeah, naturally connected to this person. And I mean, I remember being at Wimbledon in, in 2017 and um, and I just arrived and I got my credential and the media center is like connected to um, center court and then by this bridge and it's an open air bridge. And I, um, actually wrote about this in the piece, but I sort of like was in this crowd, you know, big crowd people it was sort of in between the afternoon and this sort of, um, late afternoon. And, and suddenly there was a, a stirring, you know, and a fluttering and everybody like looks, looks up sort of like an, a domino kind of a wave effect. And there's Roger <laughs> Federer on the bridge and this cheer wow. goes up. Yeah. You know, and he turns and waves. And I felt like I, I mean, I felt like I was in the Middle Ages, you know, and like yeah, the yeah, royal yeah. person to just like come to the window of the castle. And we had, we had yelled long live the king. I mean, I just felt that <laughs> even it was this kind of amazing moment. And, and, and yeah. that's the way I have felt about him. And, and, you know, all credit, you know, it's funny because we mentioned this with Aaron Judge, like how much does the person matter? And it's, you know, we all as sports fans, we all know. They are not what you think they are. Like, that's like, it's just a fallacy to think these guys are heroes. Like they're not, you know, I'm sure. And yet it does matter. Like, of course it matters yep. because we are human beings who are connecting to human stories and it matters if we like them. And it even matters if we like what other people don't like. I mean, they're villains or whatever, you know, but like you, you forge this personal connection and that's what draws you in. And he had this kind of like generous quality and, and it was rare and it was different and it continues to be rare and different. And one of the ways in which he's just so special and important. And I think actually, I do think he is important is that there are so few models of athletes and Nadal has this too, um, where you don't have to hate the competition. You know, you can mm-hmm. want to destroy your opponent without wanting to destroy them. You can want to, beat them while building them up, you know? Mm-hmm. And I feel mm-hmm. like he had that, like, I feel like he had this kind of like natural inclination to make everybody better, you know, and to sort of give that to them. And it was done through small things. And, and it was re it, I don't want to say it was real, it was genuine. I 
never had an individual interview with him. I never had a personal connection. You know, I only saw him in these, you know, but, but it's also true. Like I, you know, another time at Wimbledon, I was there and, you know, he was, I was sitting next, I was sitting outside of a very small interview room, which is where they send the, the lesser players (laughs) (laughs) Um, who just won their matches. And there was um, a Japanese player who had just won his first ever grand slam main Mm. draw match. And he was sitting outside the interview room and he was playing a video game on his phone. You know, he was just sitting there by himself playing a video game on Mm -hmm. his phone, waiting to go into this basically one person interview room where one person was going to interview him, you know, and it might've even been like a tour official. I don't know. Usually you have to be requested to be interviewed. So someone was going to interview him, but it was just like, it was a huge deal in his life, but not in a huge deal in the life of Wimbledon or anybody else. Right. And down, you know, it's one of these halls where it's like, there's a, the hall kind of ends in a T with another hall and Mm. across the other hall, we're sitting in the hall across the other hall goes Roger Federer and his entourage, right? Like a thousand people <laughs> are traveling with, walking with Roger Federer. And the, the, you know, the, 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 the cortege like passes by and then it stops and then it backs up. Roger Federer has seen this kid and he comes mm-hmm. down the hall, comes back, comes back down the hall, shakes his hand and congratulates him on his first ever main draw win. Nobody's, wow. I mean, I'm there, but nobody's there to see that. Like nobody's taking note. Like it was a totally spontaneous, um, I mean, how he knew that this guy had, I mean, like who mm-hmm. had told him what, you know, it's just like, it was just like, it, it seemed to me to reflect so many things, which was one, his like general interest in the game that he knew this. Um, and two, like mm-hmm. his, the instinct and the impulse to, stop and congratulate them. And there's something patronizing about like, Oh, he's such, you know, he's so great. He shook someone's hand, you know? No, but, and yet, like, yeah, you could just see this kid, like, just like, you know, it, mm-hmm. it was as big as victory itself. Like it just filled mm-hmm. him with this kind of grace, you know? I and, love that story um, so much, Louisa. I, pardon? I love that story. Yeah. But I, everybody, amazing story. Stories. Everybody on tour has had a story where, um, you know, some he's, they've seen him do something quietly that, you know, and it all too, mm-hmm. like a hundred percent. And that's not to say that other players aren't doing that. Um, it's just, you know, these are the two guys, most of all, who don't have to. And, and, and it's, and it seems genuine and spontaneous and, and it also infuses their relationships with each other and with other people. And um, I, there's not enough of, of that in sport. I mean, we, you know, you do see occasions of it, but like, it just, it just makes you feel good. And it, and it's the kind of inspiration that makes you want to do it yourself. Like, I mean, that's the, that's the other mm. thing that I think why it's important. Like, it just makes you feel like you want to live up to this ideal. I, I got to ask because it feels like um, <clears throat> in, in some ways what you're describing is the anti Djokovic. Like it, there's a way in which, and maybe that's not fair. It's but, not fair. Okay. 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 No, I, I, and I want to hear why, because crowds obviously don't have the same relationship with Djokovic, who is in some ways, I mean, he's totally so dominant. Uh, and, you know, in some ways he didn't have, an, you know, Nadal at his peak to compete mm-hmm. with the way Federer did, but maybe even more dominant, um, you know, in his extended run. But he's known as the sort of, 
angry anti-vaxxer who gets, you know, thrown out of tournaments for doing ridiculous stuff on the court and who is not not well liked by right. by the the crowds, I would say for the most part, does not have that relationship that you're describing and is not as, you know, his reputation is is not uh he doesn't have that that kind of presence, the magisterial presence right uh, on the on the tour that you're describing. Yeah. Well, the reason I'm saying it's not the opposite is that he tries very hard. And I do think that he does things like that. Like, I do think that he's shaking people's hands and congratulating them and trying to live up to the ideal. And it's an impossible, I mean, he's in the worst possible situation because what I just said, like they have this kind of way of making, they've set the bar and you want to meet it. When I don't meet the bar, like nobody notices. Right. <laughs> nobody cares. <laughs> when mm -hmm. he doesn't meet the bar, while surpassing it in every other way, like his, the kind of gap between his natural charisma and, and Federer's is just so, is stark and people, and, and just becomes magnified. Like, I mean, in a way, like I, I really do admire a lot of things about Djokovic. One, I admire the way he wins tennis yeah. matches yeah, yeah. all the time. Um, mm -hmm. But two, I, I actually admire, he gets a lot, a lot of shit for trying too hard. I mean, and that's what people don't mm. like. People don't like, and the word that they will use is phony. I don't think there's anything about phony mm. about his effort mm. to be a good person who, um, you know, who people respond to. And I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to be liked. I don't. I like to be liked too. I desperately want to be liked. I have totally every single day had that moment where I have said something to make someone like me. And then I cringe because I know how I sound, you know, <laughs> most of us are more like Djokovic than Roger Federer. Wow. You know? That is a depressing, but, but definitely. That, accurate. Is, a, <laughs> that is a good, that's good. That should be on a bumper sticker. Yeah. <laughs> However, and like, good for him okay and but i also think like obviously he is in a bubble of his making and yeah. he is hearing a lot of voices that i don't agree with sure. and he's coming from a place that i desperately don't agree with and a lot of the sciencey wellness stuff it's all it's worked for him personally which makes it dangerous you know yeah. um but i don't i feel a lot of sympathy because i think he um he wants, he doesn't want to be left out of that, you know, Nadal Federer. I don't think he does. I think he wants to be included. I mean, you could see it at the Labor Cup. Like it was all about Nadal and Federer. For me, it was all about, he was there. He was also the one winning all the tennis matches for that team. <laughs> Those two guys could show up, play once, and he, playing injured, is like out there desperately trying to win tennis matches for them, you know? Mm -hmm. And he's giving speeches and there was this kind of moment and I don't want to make too much of it. Cause like if I weren't already sort of like emotionally charged, I probably wouldn't even notice it, but he's talking about how beautiful this moment is and beautiful that Fetter's family is. And, and he's like, and he mentions that the most beautiful moment he saw was when his, when the kids were sobbing, when Fetter's kids were sobbing and Fetter was sobbing. And it, I, I'm going to sob actually, cause I am a parent and I just, yeah know everything that went into this moment when he said when he tried to comfort his kids by saying i'm happy they're all crying everybody's crying and he wants he wants them to know he's happy 
that these are happy mm-hmm. tears, you know, and he just like, he's like, and it was just such a perfect, genuine moment. And you also know, we find out later, he didn't know that everybody heard him say that, but it was such a kind of beautiful mm. parenting moment. And Djokovic mm-hmm. mentions this and he says to Federer, like, I hope I don't want to make you cry again or whatever. He kind of makes this joke. And of course, Federer's not crying because like Djokovic is never going to make Federer <laughs> cry. <laughs> You know, he's never going to like bring that, like kind of, he's not going to, you know, spark that, those feelings in him. He's just like there. <laughs> Whereas like if mm-hmm. Nadal had said that probably Federer would have started, you know, and it was just this like kind of tragic moment. Cause you know, he wanted to be included in that kind of family, you know, mm-hmm. that Nadal clearly was. And he, he wasn't, and that's not, and that's not his fault. And that's, and he tries so hard and people yeah, people don't like it because they think he's a phony. I think he's very genuine in his desire to be liked. And I I get that. Um, I happen to, like, you know, prefer watching guys <laughs> play tennis sometimes. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, you too. You, know, you also are. <laughs> like the rest of the world. You, yeah. anyway. No, no, but he's, I mean, whatever. He's amazing. I mean, I'll, I, I won't say all respect to Djokovic because I disagree with him on important things, but, um, but much respect to him. I, I, I'm going to, I don't think it has to be, I don't have, think it has to be um, quite so stark a division as, as um, it might seem. Do you, do you think those Federer Nadal battles that the height of that era was the greatest period of men's tennis ever? Um, I am like a hopeless, like ridiculous person when it comes. There's a, I mean, tennis is like tennis, is like baseball, has an amazing yeah sure. history. Much of it is opaque to me. I wasn't around for the. I just recently watched, uh, or a couple of years ago, I did this commentary on the. There's this great French open documentary, Roland Garros, um, that mm-hmm. actually aired at the Metrograph a couple of years ago, um, and it's it's amazing. But it begins with Bjorg. Um, Bjorn Borg, sorry, not Bjorn, Bjorn Borg. And he's like, it's like the camera is like at shoulder level as he walks into a sea of like screaming women. It's like over his shoulder. And it's just like, it's like a GoPro <laughs> from the 1970s. And um, yeah, so, you know, I'm, I wasn't around for the McEnroe era. I was like barely paying attention when Agassi and Sampras were at it. So like, who, you know, it's hard to compare, but yeah, of course. Having <laughs> <laughs> said all that. Having <laughs> said all that, clearly. <laughs> There's no question. Um, also, my baby is crying, so can I go grab him? Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Um, this is awesome. I gotta so, get out of what, here. What is, the, uh, what is yeah. your favorite men's tennis matchup that you've, in your lifetime? Was there ever, was it Federer and Nadal? And if... And, other than Federer and Nadal, like I loved watching Michael Chang and Andre Agassi because they just played stylistically so like a great brand of tennis. Um, it's so funny you. because, like, you know, Chang did he was it did he win? I uh, <laughs> my baby Chang won. What was it? Wimbledon. Marvel. He won serving underhanded in 1989, or it was he I, he won a grand. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, and then yes. in the 90s, um, you know, you get the rise of like Sampras, the just mm-hmm. huge uh, serving American, kind of boring 
player, but like big server and those yeah. Empress Agassi battles. You got to root for Agassi in that, you know, I feel like uh, definitely mm-hmm. Agassi over Sampras. Uh, and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but uh, that was the kind of, you know, because I too miss the the McEnroe, the Jimmy Connors era, all of that stuff. Here, here the, here's the world. thing. I think that technology has made the sport so much more appealing. Yeah. I mean, I am. it's like one of the reasons why it's hard to compare is that, you know, just like racket string and racket technology and shoe technology or whatever, like means that the mm-hmm. court is just bigger than it has ever been. Yep. And mm-hmm. they can hit with spins that they never could hit with before. So who knows, you know, like what, you know, Edberg could have done now or, yeah. you know, who, anyone else or, you know, Yannick yeah. Noah or whatever. <laughs> um, but because, mm-hmm. because the court is just, um, it's just huge because they can use it all. And that's exciting. And you had these also just magnetic elemental forces of characters and you, the combination of, of that kind of athleticism and skill and personality is like, I think, you know, unparalleled Yeah, I, in sport, frankly. I, I mean, I think, mm. I personally think it's like one of the great eras in any sport. Yeah. Makes sense. I was really struck by that, um, the video of Federer and Nadal sitting next to each other, both weeping, and trying to imagine, like, Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods having a moment yeah. like that. And I just didn't see it. Like, I just, you know... Michael Jordan uh, to Charles Barkley. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see it. I, I thought about Steph and LeBron. No, it's not happening. Aaron Rodgers is not going to cry with Tom Brady. Um I loved that. I loved that. Um, of course. And that's why and I loved- it's important. Like, I think that that is a totally unique model for an athlete. And I think it's like the best model. Yeah. You know, yeah, the feeling that you get from that, it takes you way beyond sports. I feel like. Exactly. And I think that's like the kind of thing you talk about in little league or whatever, like try to, mm-hmm. you know, beat your opponent, but then shake hands and share yeah. pizza afterward or whatever, like that yeah. kind of, baloney you that nice you know, like, yeah. like, there it is like that's it that's that's sportsmanship in a, the kind of gallant sense you know it's so funny because i i so often think that when the they're like positive relationships between two great rivals it's overplayed it's often bullshit yeah. like look larry bird and magic johnson were not like hanging out all the time right you know and it, there was definitely a way of presenting this to the media is like oh we love each other and you're like i didn't i'm sure you know oh, when two guys are sitting next to each other crying yeah yeah hands. you're like <laughs> okay i believe balling. i believe balling. yeah <laughs> you know and then what what um what nadal wrote on social media it was so like it was so cute and i just you know anyway it makes you i, I have to say um, Yuri Nathan, uh, a tennis writer, he wrote this. I, I'm stealing this from him, but he's like, I can't wait to write the collected press conference. Like, I can't wait to buy the little like chapbook of collected press conferences of Nadal, like next to the supermarket register. That guy is like the most accessible. Like, he's like <laughs> David Foster Wallace's commencement speech, but like. <laughs> You know, every single time it's like you, you just put him in front of a micro microphone and he will give you like a little kind of like cone of, you know, wisdom, which is like a little bit trite, um, but so, but so deeply felt that like anyone can sort of like 
take it on board and you know and his like english mm-hmm. malapropisms are are so perfect adorable like you know when instead of calling people athletes he calls them sportsmen you know yeah. it's just like it's so charming <laughs> and, you know uh, so i feel like federer is not an athlete federer is a sportsman yeah he's a sportsman a sportsman you know makes it sound like he's gonna um, go fox hunting <laughs> like, i know he kind of looks like he was he was born to fox hunt yeah um this is like what like the olympians like you know sort of like back in the turn of the 20th century when they were kind of like recreating ancient greece like this is what they had in, <laughs> in mind totally you know? i feel like i'm watching chariots of fire or something you know like... yeah, exactly. <laughs> oddly now i'm getting federated with those little hermes wings on his feet i don't know why that's fitting like so I'm perfectly sure he, to me, i'm but... sure that his brand is you know at some point some iteration they should have they probably put right that. yeah yeah um also tennis wise um i want to ask you about the biggest story I think in tennis this year was, which is Serena Williams retiring. Mm-hmm. But I want to begin it by asking you about Venus because I love Venus and um, Venus has had, they both had a special place, but um, I feel like fairly early in Serena's career, I'm not a tennis yeah. is not my main thing. So I'm, I'm kind of an outsider to it, but it felt to me like pretty early in Venus's career once Serena hit a certain level, Serena was like clearly regarded as the number one. And I feel like to the casual fan, I didn't hear much about Venus Williams after that, unless she happened to be playing Serena or right. sometimes playing with her. Um, just uh, Venus has stopped playing doubles, but she's still playing singles. Say Venus Williams retires, you know, next year. I'm just curious um, to you what your memory or, 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 takeaway from Venus Williams will be um, when she steps away because I'm, I'm really interested in, in, in Venus Williams for some reason in particular. Oh yeah. No, I mean, it's funny. I, I went back recently and read um, there's a John Wertheim who's a, an editor at Sports Illustrated and a tennis channel commentator. And he wrote this book mm-hmm. called Venus Envy and it's, you know, it's dated in all sorts of ways. It's from the early two thousands. But she is the, it's not Serena in that book. Like she, Venus is the force who changed tennis. And you really yeah, yeah. get it in that book. It's not Serena. And that's not not to say anything about Serena. That has just to say like, that was a book written in real time. And mm-hmm. Venus was the one who did it and had to take everything that Serena, we all know how much crap Serena had to take. Like Venus had to take 20 times that Venus and and I do believe Venus took it so that Serena could take it less and Mm. Serena took it so that you know future generations could take it less I mean there's this really beautiful profile written of um sorry that's my baby (laughs) Um, what's the baby's name uh Noah hi Noah um and there's this really beautiful profile written of Venus a couple of years ago by Elizabeth Weil. And it's, I think the headline was, did Venus get her due? And the obvious answer is no in the piece. Um, and it's this beautiful, it's a love letter of a piece. You know, it's not like, it's not comprehensive and quite, you know, the way, but it was, but it was kind of honest and true and captured something real about her. And um, there, it ends with this image of, there were, that Richard Williams envisioned them as this kind of rocket. And at some point, you know, 
uh, like Venus, you know, was the one who kind of like absorbed all the radiation and the wind or whatever. So yeah, that, yeah. that that Serena could be like the launcher, you know, that 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 then the thrusters go and and Serena launches into space, you know, mm-hmm. and she couldn't have done that without. I a hundred percent believe. And you know, it was funny because I, I posted this piece about them and I had this line, you know, there's no Serena without Venus. And um then Serena plays that night and loses and retires and her and in her um in her encore interview she, she says there's no serena without venus and yeah, I have all these yeah. messages being like do you think she wrote your piece i was like no it's just have true. you been plagiarized by serena williams have become like, full circle from, you and from he french like, <laughs> i'm like i don't think she was sitting there like reading like the new yorker.com like <laughs> before she took the she might, she might have. Um, she might but have. it's just it's not a just small magazine and i give <laughs> them all of the credit in the world for having the kind of relationship they did and the awareness self-awareness that they have and mm-hmm. for serena to say that and know it and for and to tell venus that in that moment you know serena Venus never got her due except from Serena, you know? Mm, mm-hmm. Maybe. Me. Yeah, I feel that <laughs> way. I feel that way. I love Venus. I actually think that Venus might be my favorite athlete right now. Mm-hmm. There's something very special about her. There's something. There's something totally unique and special about her. She has, what we were talking about, Roger Federer, if he is the king, mm-hmm. she is the queen. She has that regal nobility mm-hmm. that kind of integrity that kind of natural born mm-hmm. aristocracy like i would live and serve for her <laughs> because she just has that aura she just has that yeah she is she is a queen and to to reflect just for a moment again on serena's greatness I always, because I loved Venus so much um, from the start, when Venus would play Serena, I was always rooting for Venus. And to even when rooting for Venus Williams, generally have a feeling of hopelessness because Serena Williams was just so incredible at everything that even Venus felt like an underdog. I know early on it was, but like I feel like once Serena got established, Oh yeah, very early. I would always root for her. Always root for her, and even if it felt eventually like even Venus couldn't like touch Serena at some point, which is oh yeah, pretty early. Hard on. to fathom. Hard to fathom. Yeah, I mean it's um, um you know it was an awkward matchup for both of them, I think, and for fans. Um, and sometimes mm-hmm. those matches were really kind of uncomfortable to watch early on. Later on, they had some good matches like surprisingly good matches um it was hard early it was hard to watch them yeah um i would never i couldn't you know i would never i would never i could never imagine facing my younger sister like that oh i would beat my brother's ass no i'm (laughs) (laughs) we would go at each other are you kidding yeah i mean but one of the interesting things and one of the things that made that dynamic awkward is that they clearly had different understandings of their role she was protective of mm. Serena in a way that Serena was not protective of her. Yeah. I think that Venus was much more, and sh- I think that you can just listen to them. This is not really speculation. Venus was much more conflicted about beating Serena than Serena was about beating Venus. Sure. Mm. Yep. 
And that's one of the reasons why Serena was Serena and Venus wasn't Serena, (laughs) you know? But like, it's also one of the reasons Serena could be Serena, you know? God, I love them. I, mm. right. Speaking of speaking of like, I feel like the other thing that I just like personal growth time. Like, I feel like the last like thinking about these people, and I mean, this is like such a bad reason to watch sports. But I mean, you know, I'm I'm like middle age, and I'm just like, how do I change my life to be <laughs> more well, like yeah. people I admire? Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Change my personality. Do I beat that? I I try to take that out of like every single game that I watch, which is not yeah. useful at all. Like there must be something in here I can take away. No, not always. No, um. Always. So let me close, uh, Jonah Birch, with the breaking Tom Brady news for you today. Um, the breaking oh. news is that I, who have never been a Tom Brady fan at all, I feel bad for Tom Brady. I feel sincere human sympathy. For Tom Brady, because I feel like, you know, he wins the Super Bowl a couple years ago. Everything is perfect. He hangs around one more year. It doesn't go quite as well. He retires. But then he comes back. There's there's obviously issues in his personal life that are not going well. The football so far, not going quite so well. He looks, like, gorgeous but skinny. Gaunt. I... I Yes, gaunt. Yes, we've gone from gallant to gaunt. He looks gaunt. He doesn't look happy. And I feel like if you realize you're not happy as a... If you're 35 and you're playing football and you realize you don't want to do it, that's really, really tough. He's 45 and might be realizing, I don't really want to do this. And he can't do anything but do it. Um, I feel for I feel for your guy. I feel for Tom Brady. Let me tell Are you, you worried about your guy. I, Are you worried I about? Feel like I need to 12? give him uh, advice about going through a breakup, and be like, "Look, it's going to be all right. You know, I, it looks bleak now, but you're going to be fine. You know, lots of people out there, it, it, you're going to be okay. You know, like we need to talk Tom Brady through this divorce process uh, that seems seems to be happening. I, you know. Okay, again, maybe that that uh, that was a joke. Maybe that didn't land in my head. It was a lot funnier, you know. The uh, oh, I got. Guys, I thought you had more. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we want to. Um, we're going to end on the Tom Brady news. We want to thank Louisa Thomas um, again for joining us. You can follow her on Twitter at Louisa H Thomas. Um, please remember also that you can f- uh, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Jacobin Sports Show. Follow us on Twitter at Jacobin Sports and email jacobinsports at gmail.com. That is all for today. Thank you, Louisa. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Jonah. Thank you, Federer. Thank you, Venus. And thank you, Serena. Take care, everybody.